Welcome to the American Research Center in Egypt's podcast. Through this program, we'll present the latest findings and host engaging discussions about fascinating topics in Egyptian cultural heritage. We'll be joined by world-renowned scholars in the fields of Egyptology, archaeology, Islamic, Coptic, and modern Egyptian history, and so much more. If there are topics you would like to suggest for this program, email us at podcast at arce.org. If you enjoy the work of the American Research Center in Egypt, then learn about our other programs and activities at rc.org. You can also support our work by signing up for our mailing list, becoming a member, or donating to support our operations and projects. Today's podcast will explore King Tutankhamun's lineage and feature guest speaker Professor Aidan Dotson and Dr. Fatma Ismail, our U.S. Director for Outreach and Programs. I hope you enjoy the episode and thank you for joining us today. Here with us today is Professor Aidan Dotson, who's going to talk to us about the most famous Egyptian ruler, the legendary King Tutankhamun. Professor Dotson studied at Durham, Liverpool, and Cambridge universities, being awarded his PhD in 1995. He has taught at the University of Bristol since 1996 and has been honorary full professor of Egyptology in the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology since 2018. Professor Dobson is the author of some 25 books and 300 articles and reviews. Thank you so much, Professor Dotson, for accepting to spend time with us today. No problem. The discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb was definitely one of the most celebrated archaeological finds. But I would like to go back before 1922 and ask you, what did we know about him before his tomb discovery? What are our earliest lines of evidence for King Tutankhamun, and how did we begin to piece together his life story? Well, Tutankhamun is actually one of the earliest pharaohs Egyptologists really learnt about from original ancient Egyptian sources. In the 1820s, hieroglyphs were first being deciphered, we couldn't read everything properly, but at least names could start being read. And one person in particular, um, John Gardner Wilkinson, a pioneer British Egyptologist, spent a lot of time working at Luxor, particularly at the Temple of Karnak, and he was able to start collecting the names of the various pharaohs he was able to find there on the various walls and on scattered blocks. And amongst those first names he found and was able to publish in his book in 1828 were the names of Tutankhamun. Now a few years previously the first of the great monumental king lists had been found, one of those in the temple of Ramesses II at Abydos, and the preserved section of that, which is now in the British Museum, um, included a list of the kings of the 18th dynasty. And the 18th dynasty kings were a lot of those who Wilkinson was finding on, on his blocks at Karnak. And the block with Tutankhamun's name on it, which unfortunately we don't know where it is anymore, also had on it the name of Amenhotep III. It had clearly been reused by Tutankhamun from something of his grandfather there. The problem for Wilkinson was that having seen the name on the same blocking at the style of the hieroglyphs, it was clear to Dunkhamun ought to belong to the 18th dynasty, yet he wasn't there on the Abydos list. Now we know from later research, of course, that Tadankhamun, Akhenaten, I, 
and the other kings of the Amarna period were later written out of history. And so when the Abydos king list was being written in the reign of Ramesses II, they had been wiped out of history. But Wilkinson didn't know that. However, he knew, he knew enough of about already about style and so on to know that Tutankhamun must be somewhere in this kind of period. And therefore, to explain his absence from the king list, he wondered whether he might have been an elder brother of Amenhotep III, or, another, or at least a close relative who tried to perhaps uh, usurp him, or something like that. Because in some of the Greek stories, which are set in that kind of period, there are various disputes. So that was where Tutankhamun was for a while. Not all early Egyptologists agreed with Wilkinson and where he should be placed. But then as time went by over the next couple of decades and the other kings of that period, Akhenaten himself, I and so on, started to become visible, Egyptologists started realising that these people were in the gap between Amenhotep III and Horemheb which on the king list went straight together as far as the Abidus king list is concerned. The, the, the history goes Amenhotep III, Horemheb, and then on to the Ramesses. So all of this started coming together, uh, particularly when people started exploring the areas where the monuments of Akhenaten were. And so by the middle of the 19th century, it was clear that Tutankhamun belonged in this little group, but exactly where he fitted in was unclear. Then as we move on through the 19th century, particularly with the excavations of Flinders Petrie at Amarna in the early 1890s, that further reinforced the view that Tutankhamun was part of this group and that he was either the successor or a successor of Akhenaten. Also during this period, it became clear that he was the husband of Akhenaten's third daughter, Ankhesenpa'aten, later Ankhesenamun, and therefore the theory was he might have been some nobleman who'd married a king's daughter and then, when the king died without a son, had then somehow inveigled his way into becoming king. There was even a thought whether he might actually be the noble named Tutu, who we find at Amarna. Different person, it turns out, but again, late 19th century, early 20th century, trying to work out what, what might be possible there. So as far as the history is concerned, leaving aside the artistic and other things which came out of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, the big historical takeaway was the discovery that he wasn't a noble of, of a sufficient age to have somehow sort of organised his way onto the throne, but had come to the throne at the age of nine. And further, by examining the mummy, it was clear he was part of the same family as Akhenaten and the others. So therefore, at that point, it became clear he must have been a real royal prince who had married a royal princess and therefore was a proper successor to the throne rather than somebody who in some way sort of usurped their way in. The big question, of course, then came about as to actually what were Tutankhamun's family relationships. Yes, it's interesting to know that Egyptologists first learned about King Tutankhamun almost a century before they discovered his tomb. We are about to celebrate the centennial of his tomb discovery, yet we, there are still many mysteries um, about the king, 
One of them is uh, his parental lineage, especially his mother. What does the latest research suggest about her identity? Why are most Egyptologists reasonably sure his father is Akhenaten? Okay, the idea that Tutankhamun's father is Akhenaten comes from a couple of blocks which were found at Ashmunain, just opposite Amarna, by German expeditions before the Second World War. But all these blocks originally had come from Amarna. When Akhenaten's regime was dismantled, the temples of Amarna were dismantled, and under Ramesses II, the various blocks were shipped across the river to be used as infill for the building projects of Ramesses II over there. Now, these two blocks are the sole surviving bits, as far as we can tell, from a whole wall scene. With about with ninety percent of the of the bits missing, unfortunately, but what they are, they go together. One of them says, "The king's son of his body, his beloved Tutankhamun," which is clearly Tutankhamun's original name as a prince. And the other uh, adjoining block names king a king's daughter, and although it's damaged, it's almost certainly Ankhesenpa-Aten. The hieroglyphs are in opposite directions on these two blocks, so therefore the blocks go together, and therefore. The central part of this scene would have been Tutankhaten on one side, facing Ankesinpa-Aten. And presumably Akhenaten, Nefertiti and others would have been elsewhere on this wall. But we sort of, but that's all we can sort of visualise from the fragments there. Now, from the context there, Ankesinpa-Aten is called King's Daughter. And we know that the king in question of that is Akhenaten. And therefore, one's first sort of assumption on that would be, therefore, that the king, referred to in the king's son, in the label text of Tutankhaten, uh, would also be Akhenaten. There are some other ideas around this, but the vast majority of Egyptologists are happy that that logic stream works nicely. The question of his mother is a much more open one, and there is far more debate around this than on the question of his father. Although, as anybody who's listening to this is well aware, where it comes to the Amarna period, there are many different theories that there are Egyptologists who work on it. And so any idea of some kind of consensus is almost impossible. So very much what I'm saying on, um, in this podcast is very much how I read the data with a few mentions of where some other people have a slightly different view. Anyway, the question about his mother. Now, in normal circumstances, when one is trying to work out who the, who the mother of a king is, you'd normally start off saying, well, unless you've got any other data, it must be one of the wives of his father. And you'd normally sort of start off at least with the king's great wife, which in Akhenaten's case is Nefertiti. So therefore, if this were any other period, you'd probably say, well, probably his mother would be Nefertiti. This, however, has been denied by a va the vast majority of Egyptologists because when you look at the wall carvings at Amarna, you have Akhenaten and Nefertiti with six children, up to six children regularly shown with them, but all girls. And the view has been taken, well, surely, given how keen um, Akhenaten and Nefertiti were to show off their kids, if they had a son, he would be there in the procession along with the girls. So therefore, there's been a general sort of anybody but Nefertiti approach to seeking Tutankhamun's mother. And most people have simply then plumped 
for the only other wife of, of Akhenaten who we're aware of, or certainly aware of, which is Kia, a slightly mysterious junior wife who has a unique title, um, a name which seems to be a, a pet form of something else, so slightly mysterious, but she's often been confidently called the mother of Tutankhamun. However, we do actually find Kia on some temple wall blocks, particularly from Ashmunain, although she was disgraced at some point during her husband's reign, so therefore her material is far less well preserved than the Nefertiti stuff. Uh, the trouble is that she is shown with a child, in fact she and Akhenaten are shown with a child in these blocks, unfortunately it's a girl. So if you're arguing that Nefertiti couldn't be Tutankhamun's mother because he's, she's never shown with a son, you can't then say Kia must be the mother because she's only ever shown with a daughter as well. So there's a slight problem around this. Now, people who argue that on the basis that it can't be Nefertiti because she's never shown with a son actually show that they're not fully aware of the history of the decorum of the representation of the royal family in Egypt because actually there is no known example of a royal son being shown in the context of a royal scene in a tomb or a temple at any time in Egyptian history down to the time of Akhenaten. Not mm. a single example anywhere. So therefore, asking to find him shown with his mother, father and sisters on a, on a temple or tomb wall is asking for something which cannot exist up till mm. this point in time. Now, and when you start looking at periods around here, you start understanding what's going on. During the 18th dynasty, you do occasionally get royal sons shown on temple walls, but it's only, they're only there because of their day job. If they're a high priest or something else, they're never on a temple wall because they are the king's son. The only time you find representations of princes because they're king's sons is in the tombs of their tutors, where private it's a private location where the tutor is trying to show how closely beloved he is of the king uh, by virtue of being entrusted with the king's child to to look after and bring up it's only later during the ramesside period that we find these huge numbers of representations of the king's sons in temples of ramesses the second and so on it's also worth pointing out that if you're trying to use the argument that a son isn't show, cannot be, cannot exist if he's not shown with his parents and um, sisters on a temple wall, we only have to go to the reign of Amenhotep III, Akhenaten's father. There in the temple at Soleb in Sudan, we have the king, Amenhotep III, his wife, Queen T, known to be the mother of Akhenaten on, mass, on multiple grounds, plus a whole bunch of the daughters of the king, but no sign of Akhenaten whatsoever. And nobody has ever tried to argue on the basis of him not being shown in this family scene at Soleb for Akhenaten or even his elder brother, the prematurely deceased Prince Thutmose, uh, were not we're not the sons of, of Queen T. So we we'll have to be very, very careful about looking at these arguments in the overall context, of what we know about Egyptian representation. And in fact, on the basis of what I've just been saying there, that up until Akhenaten's reign, there is no 
sign every, every, anywhere of a royal son on the temple wall by virtue of them being purely a royal son. These couple of blocks from Ashmanane would actually be the first ever representation of this kind. And that representation seems to come from the latter part of Akhenaten's reign. So it looks though possibly this decorum which denies the placement of royal sons by virtue of their being royal sons from these kind of contexts is changed late in Akhenaten's reign and then that then jumps forward when we get into the Ramesside period to these great processions of the, of the 50, 50 sons of Ramesses II in his various temples. So on that basis, the, I would say the most economical solution is to say that, that Tutankhamun is the son of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, unless we have very convincing evidence that somebody else is. You are listening to the official podcast of the American Research Center in Egypt. If you need any information about our operations, please go to arce.org. Now we'll go back to our episode with Professor Aidan Dotson. The Amarna family portraits are definitely different than in other uh, time periods of Egyptian history. They challenged many of the rules of Egyptian art and royal family representations. Are you saying the absence of royal male children accompanying their fathers is intentional or a form of long practice to quorum even during the Amarna period? What I'm saying, I think, is that up until the middle part of the reign, i.e. the period when most of the representations which survive were carved, most of them sort of date the, the years directly after the move to Amarna, when you just find Akhenaten, Nefertiti and the daughters. Yes, he's still following the decorum of earlier on. However, in the last three or four years of the reign, it look, I suspect he is ch that, that changes. And there's, a, they may, there's maybe a whole range of reasons for that. But there we find towards the end, he is breaking with those thousands of years of tradition. And once he's broken that tradition, those that then gets changed much on a much larger scale through into the Ramesside period. Hmm. How, how about the complex issue of his DNA studies? The DNA studies, which were published in 2010 of various uh, royal mummies assigned to the Riyamana period, is one of the big, big problems, shall we say, when we're trying to assess what's going on here. Because there's a couple of issues here. First of all, and the problem here is that, like other Egyptologists, I'm an Egyptologist. I'm not a geneticist and I therefore have difficulty in fully um, assessing what geneticists are telling us. Now, some geneticists are still saying that ancient DNA and DNA derived from mummies is impossible. Others are saying, no, it's not. It's perfectly possible. And here we've got loads of it. So before we even start looking at the exact data, which was published in 2010, one has to have in the back of one's mind, is this actually real at all? And I'm not, so I'm not qualified to say one way or the other, but there is an ongoing hot debate over whether or not ancient DNA, whether from Egyptian mummies or from anywhere else, is actually real or actually is all modern 
um, contamination. So I'm going to put that as sort of a, a basic. Assuming that the DNA is real, one then has to sort of see what those conclusions from the 2010 study um, might say. As far as the parentage of Tutankhamun is concerned, what that study said was that his father was Akhenaten and his mother was a full-blooded sister of Akhenaten and that full-blooded sister is represented by the so-called younger, younger lady uh, mummy from the tomb of Amenhotep II. Now that presents us with an issue on, the, on historical and artistic grounds because in all of the material we have from Akhenaten's reign, and particularly from the period where one, one, one calculates that Tutankhamun was born, there is no sign whatsoever of a sister wife of Akhenaten. We know that neither Kia nor Nefertiti was, was his sister. They don't hold the appropriate titles. So if Akhenaten did have a full-blooded sister who he'd married and had a son by, it is almost incomprehensible why there is no sign of her on any of the monuments of this kind of period, because as a full-blooded sister, she would outrank Nefertiti and Kia. So what do we do with that? Well, the thing is here that when you look more closely at the publication of the DNA results, it's clear that the publication, although it gave the raw DNA, it only gave the preferred interpretations of that DNA by the study's authors. It didn't actually say, actually, here is the raw DNA. This could mean A, B or C. They simply said, we prefer, our preferred solution to this is B or C or whatever it is, rather than giving that full range. So it took a little while before um, Egyptologists, in particular Mark Gabold, who's done a lot of work on the Amarna period, um, talked to tame DNA specialists and, re and it became clear there are other ways of reading that raw DNA. So what it turns out is that if you've got an individual and looking at their DNA, it looks like they're the offspring of a brother-sister marriage, that same DNA signature could be generated if, if that person's parents had been first cousins and that their parents and grandparents had also been first cousins. So three generation of first cousin marriages has an indistinguishable genetic effect on the resulting offspring from a brother-sister marriage. Now, if you take that as a model and take the view that, well, these, that Akhenaten and the younger lady are then first cousins, and then look at possible interpretations of the historical evidence for the relationships of the people of the next couple of generations above them, we actually come up with something which is perfectly credible. So if the younger lady is Nefertiti, and there have long been speculations that her father was I, the brother of Queen T, and then we go back another generation and assume that Yuya, who was the father of Queen T definitely, and quite possibly of I, if he was a brother, as has been speculated on other grounds in the past, of Mutemwia, the mother of Amenhotep III, it's actually not very difficult to produce a credible family tree which gives you that three 
uh, generations of first cousins, which works nicely with the historical data, doesn't mean we have to invent a sister wife of Akhenaten. And so therefore, although one can't prove it, and there's always this thing in the back of one's mind about um, whether the DNA is real or not, that's something which works. And it's what I do quite like about this, is it works whether the DNA is real or not. The historical data and the DNA data are compatible here. And I think that makes a worthwhile um, hypothesis. We're not pro we can't prove any of this. That's an important thing to, to mm -hmm. bear in mind. But it's a picture which works for me as a historian and seems to work with the, the, with the um, genetic data as well. Hmm. That's the issue here, I think, because of the lack of solid, conclusive evidence, other scenarios than those you suggested are possible. Overall, we can say most likely the father is Akhenaten, the mother is most likely a close family member of Akhenaten, she could be his great wife, Nefertiti, his secondary wife, Kia, one of the other minor wives, one of his elder daughters even, or one of his sisters. We know he had eight sisters, right? However, there's no evidence he married any of them. That's the important yeah. point here. And I think sure. we have to be, we know the only, the only wives we know of Akhenaten are Nefertiti and Kia. Mm -hmm. Kia has a very weird title and there's no way that she can be, um, it seems very unlikely she was a member of the royal family at all. Whereas, Credibly, when you look at there's various bits of other evidence I haven't got time to go into easily today, which do hint that I was Nefertiti's father, and that all and, that, and then that, therefore that works. So I think, say, from my point of view, the the best working hypothesis is Akhenaten and Nefertiti as um, Tutankhamun's um, mm. parents. There are other options, but I think if one is trying to keep it simple, that is by far the best solution. Mm. You have a book on Nefertiti coming up soon, right? Indeed, yes. In October, inshallah, uh, the NC <laughs> Press will be uh, producing um, Nefertiti, uh, Queen and Pharaoh of Egypt, Her Life and Afterlife, which is the latest in a series which was kicked off by volumes on Seti I and Ramesses III. And inshallah as well, um, it should continue with volumes on other pharaohs over the next few years. Uh, basically, this, the idea of this series, and that's how the Nefertiti one works, is to start off by looking at what the evidence is for their life, for their career, for things we've just been talking about, their family relationships mm -hmm. and so on. But then, having sort of got to that point, we then jump forward 3,000 years and start looking at how they were rediscovered where we first knew, that Nefer, you know, first knew that Nefertiti even existed and then how her life story has been evolved and changed over those years. And of course, with, as far as Nefertiti is concerned, a big part of that is the discovery of the famous painted bust now in, um, in Berlin. So that's, what, that's really, it's trying to look at how she's been received by the modern world. So part one, hmm. how she lived in the ancient world. Part two, is how she's received by, by the modern world. That's very exciting. I'm very much looking forward to reading your book. And uh, I hope we can get a, a separate podcast on that with you soon. We're very happy to do that, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Some scholars have suggested that some of the objects in the tomb were made for someone else. Why did they come to be buried with Tutankhamun? 
Okay, well, it looks as about something like a quarter of the material from Tutankhamun's tomb was actually originally made, or at least started to be made for somebody else. And that somebody else was, is now clearly known to be the female king, uh, Nefenefruaten, who over the past few years, Egyptologists are largely agreed, although say, knowing how quarrelsome a bunch we are, there are exceptions for this, but probably the majority of us would now accept that the female king, Nefenefruaten, was none other than Nefertiti, who in the last few months of her husband's life had been promoted to full female pharaoh. And in fact, her, her full name had been for a long time Nefenefruaten, Nefertiti. So when she became king, she simply dropped the Nefertiti part and kept Nefenefruaten. So that is, that, this is the original owner of this, of most of, of all of this reused material. But why isn't, wasn't it used for her burial? Why was it used for Tutankhamun's? But one of the, one of the things which we've got to bear in mind here is that a lot of people have stated or at least assumed that the use, the reuse of this stuff was due to a shortage of material around the time of Tutankhamun's burial and this stuff was sort of brought out of storage, hurriedly reworked and then uh, used for the tomb. That I think is a complete, is completely wrong. What looks like happened, um, and this again is a matter of debate, but what looks like happened is that Nefenefruaten ruled alongside her, her son, Tutankhaten, later Tutankhamun, for three or four years. She then disappears from view and isn't buried as a female pharaoh. How she's buried is a whole matter, is a whole other debate, whether she's buried purely as a queen, a princess, or just stuffed in a hole in the ground as somebody persona non grata, don't know. But the key point is she is not buried as a king. Therefore, at this point, three or four years into Tutankhamun's reign, work is all, is un, is, has been ongoing for a while on the manufacture of material for Tutankhamun's burial, probably in the same workshop as the Nefenefruaten stuff. Now, it's just a question of which name, you, which pharaoh's name you're putting on this stuff, because every pharaoh has their funeral equipment in progress long before they actually die. What looks like happens here is that Nefenefruaten dies. It's decided by the new powers that be that she's not going to be acknowledged as a pharaoh in her burial and therefore all this stuff which has been made with her name is no longer required. So it's at that point that this stuff is repurposed and diverted into Tutankhamun's um, outfit, which in most cases is simply a question of changing the name on it. So probably what happens, again as far as I sort of perceive it, is that when this happens they take a name inventory of, okay, what have we had, what, what's already being made or has been made for the Tutankhamun stock of material? Is there stuff which has been completed for Nefenefruaten, which we haven't made for Tutankhamun yet? If there is, great. All we do is scrape off the name or whatever we need to do to make the adjustments. And therefore, hey, we've now got that in stock. Anything which is duplicated, we've already made for Tutankhamun and also made for Nefenefruaten. Well, Nefenefruaten and stuff is probably then just scrapped. If it's not something which can, you know, we don't want another one of it, the gold is melted down or whatever. 
So therefore, what you then have simply is this material has that point become Tutankhamun's. So when he is buried with it five or six years later on, it's not as though it's been special, it's anyway specially selected and has been modified at that stage. It just simply has been his for the past five or six years and just passes into the tomb along with everything else. Well, the phenomena of artistic reuse is a popular theme throughout Egyptian history. Um, from what you described, it sounds like it was a practical choice to do it. Um, since their discovery in 1922, Dutan Hamoun's treasures have been housed in the beautiful downtown Tahrir Square Museum. What do you think about his treasures being moved to the new Grand Egyptian Museum? All the items uh, discovered in the tomb will be put on display together for the first time, which is a good thing. For most, in most terms, it's an extremely positive thing um, because, as you say, it'll be the first time everything has been together since it actually came out of the tomb because some of the material has been down left in storerooms in Luxor and so on since 1922 or, or when they finished the excavations. So yeah, everything is being uh, put together. It's also all going through the conservation labs at the Grand Egyptian Museum before it will go on display. And from what I've seen of the artist's impressions, virtual reality and so on, of what the galleries are going to be like, it's going to be amazing with particularly the material altogether as it was in the tomb in the sense of burial chamber material in the same gallery uh, and so on unlike the situation in Tahrir where it's always been the case that it's where things can be fitted they've tried to put stuff but you know in, in given you've got those just those fixed galleries that's always been a bit of a problem you've got seen things next to each other which actually were in completely different rooms of the original tomb also from the Tahrir point of view it suddenly means these galleries are free for other stuff and in particular in the last couple of years the material of Yuya and Chuyu uh, the um, maternal grandparents of Akhenaten has all been moved actually back into the gallery they'd been thrown out of in the 1920s to make room for Tutankhamun. I've always wondered what sort of the thoughts in the, what there was discussions in the afterlife between Tutankhamun and his great grandparents about them being evicted from their nice gallery in the Kari Museum to make room for his stuff. So, so there's there's lots and lots of positives about it. The only concern is the transport of some of the material from Tahrir out to Giza to the Grand Egyptian Museum. As far as I, can, as far as I know, everything has been moved so far has been moved successfully, but there, when you're moving fragile material right across Cairo like that, there's always going to be concerns, and particularly there is a concern around the great uh, wooden gilded shrines which were erected around the king's sarcophagus. They're huge things, they're amazingly fragile, they've not really been touched since the 1920s when they first arrived in the museum at Tahrir, and I know that there are conservators who are nervous, to put it mildly, about how they're going to get across the city. On the other hand, you know, lots and lots of very experienced conservators are putting their heads together over this. But that's really the only obvious negative is concerns about possible damage to material in transit. Um, but otherwise, the, you know, the Grand Egyptian Museum will finally be able to see the Tutankhamun material properly. 
uh, be able to hopefully walk around all the objects rather than the frustration you sometimes find found at Tahrir where you want to look at the back of something but because of the size of the gallery it's been up against the wall and stuff like that so yes it's all a very positive thing just within the back of one's mind concerns about potential for damaging things on in transit which which no matter how carefully you are careful you are on these things there's always a danger of accidents happening so until everything i think is actually safely over in the grand egyptian museum and in its case there there are going to be people who are chewing their nails to some degree <laughs> about the sort of about the safety of some of this material yeah, they deserve a big bonus once it's, everything is safely in the new museum, for Very sure. Yes. I don't want to be responsible for transporting his treasures or drawing his family tree, even. No, that, I must say, the, being chief conservator at the Egyptian Museum at the moment is not a job I would ever want. <laughs> I, 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 I interned briefly in a conservation lab when I was a student, and you know it, the, the, what you need, this kind of patience and everything else, and skills you need for, for being a conservator way beyond my, my, my abilities. Thank you so much, Professor Dobson, for being with us today. Great. Lovely, 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 lovely to talk to everybody. Thank you again for joining us to listen to the American Research Center in Egypt's podcast, and thank you as well to today's guest speaker, Professor Aidan Dodson, and our U.S. Director of Outreach and Programs, Dr. Fatma Ismail. Remember to join us for our next podcast, where we will continue our series on King Tutankhamun with guest Professor Salima Ikram, who will be speaking about King Tutankhamun's tomb and its treasures. For more information about our podcast or the American Research Center in Egypt, visit our website at www.rc.org or email us at podcast at arce.org. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.